take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Lord willing, this morning we will cover the first six verses in this chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Today we begin looking at the final section of Paul's second canonical letter written to the problematic church in Corinth. You're going to notice almost immediately, perhaps you noticed just as we read through those first six verses, a, an abrupt change in tone from the rest of the epistle. In fact, this strong tone that Paul will use throughout the rest of this letter is such a change from thankfulness and encouragement to pointed correction that some commentators actually believe chapters 10 through 13 were originally a second or a separate piece of communication that was sent from Paul to the church at Corinth and just appendicized here to chapters 1 through 9. You actually would not believe the number of pages that I have read on this subject. But listen, there is no way to miss the change in tone. That certainly is true, but there's absolutely no reason to believe these chapters were originally part of a third canonical letter. If nothing else, not so much as one Greek manuscript has ever been provided that divides chapter th chapters 10 through 13 from the rest of this letter. And a lack of manuscriptal evidence is extremely Significant. Not to mention, there's no greeting here. There's no benediction at the end. We didn't see a benediction at the end of chapter 9. And no manuscriptal evidence has ever provided those things either. There's plenty of reason to believe this final section that we're going to study in this book was part of Paul's original communication with the saints in Corinth. Part of the final letter he wrote to them, at least that we know of, entitled for us, 2 Corinthians. But still yet, there is a change in tone. Is there an explanation, perhaps? Well, maybe. There's no way to be dogmatic, but I will offer at least one possibility. 
We tend to forget how long it took to write a letter of this length way back then in the first century. One just didn't sit down at a typewriter and type it out in 30 or 45 minutes. No, you took a piece of papyrus, you took a quill, you dipped it in some ink, and you started writing, and after you'd formed a few letters, you redipped it, and you just kept going slowly until you were done. We can't hardly think on those terms. Considering just how busy the Apostle Paul was in ministry all the time, everywhere, it's quite possible that it took him the better part of a month to compose this letter. And it's also possible that a messenger from Corinth arrived during that time informing him that false teachers had gained much ground since Titus left. Well, that certainly would explain the noticeable change in tone. But then again, maybe Paul planned to write all of the encouraging stuff up front and then he planned to save the heavy stuff for the end. We don't know. There is no way to know. Nevertheless, this is one communication from Paul and it all fits perfectly together and it's good for us as God's inspired word. Now remember, in in chapters 1 through 7, Paul described his apostolic ministry and he addressed a few complaints against his person even in those chapters. In chapters 8 and 9, he encouraged the church to complete the pledge that they had made to support the poor saints in Jerusalem. We completed that section last week. Well, chapters 10 through 13 are a block, almost like something like the Sermon on the Mount. They're they're a block in and of themselves. And they contain a much more serious message, a warning to the church concerning false teachers who had clearly had influence in Corinth. Now there's several things that we can know about these false teachers. I thought a little introductory work might help us relative to them. This will become more and more clear as we work through this this section over the next several months, Lord willing. First and foremost, these men sought to undermine Paul's influence in Corinth, realizing that Paul was an apostle with a message that contradicted theirs. D.A. Carson writes this, quote, Paul's opponents have evaluated him in a certain light and dismissed him as inferior. And in the process, they have attempted to capture the allegiance of an entire church, end quote. That's exactly what's going on. And Paul simply cannot overlook it. It is that serious. So the first thing is we know these men sought to undermine Paul's influence in Corinth. Secondly, these are in all likelihood Jewish Men. Paul says in chapter 11, verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So, in all likelihood, these men were Jews. And like so many in the early church, they were zealous for the old covenant law. And they even exerted pressure on Gentiles to conform to the old covenant law. Thirdly, these men arrived claiming 
to have authority from the apostles in Jerusalem. This is the very same thing we've seen earlier on in church history. In fact, we're going to learn this in the book of Acts. We know from Acts 15 and the Jerusalem council that some had gone out from Jerusalem claiming to have been sent by the apostles. Why would they do that? Well, they're apostolic authority. In the letter sent from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to the Gentile churches, it begins by saying this, Acts 15, 24, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with our words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. And he goes on to write the rest of the letter. It seems Paul knew that these false teachers in Corinth were making the exact same claims and he did not believe it was true for even a moment. He'd already seen this tactic before. By the way, this means that this particular group of false teachers that we're going to learn about here in chapters 10 through 13 should not be identified with the schismatic groups that we studied about in 1 Corinthians. All of those existed within the church. This is not that. These men were outsiders. We might even use the term intruders. And they are what you might call triumphalist. In other words, they presented their schismatic form of Christianity as the only acceptable form of Christianity. That is all that they promoted and they did so in order to show how much better they were than everyone else, including the Apostle Paul. In fact, that meant, according to their estimation, the very truth that Paul preached was not acceptable. It was actually their own doctrine that was incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was preaching the doctrine of Christ. Well, that leads us into one more identifying characteristic of these false teachers. Finally, we know for a fact they were preaching a false gospel. Chapter 11, verse 4, Paul writes, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That meant that this situation at Corinth was grave. It was serious. And that explains why Paul's tone has changed from being encouraging to being extremely sharp. This will become even more clear as we work through this. I'll give you a quick outline of these next four chapters. Uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, Paul is going to defend himself against personal attacks by the intruders, by the false teachers. We'll see some of that this morning. In, chapters 11, in chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 13, by the way, that is, that's a section that's often referred to as the fool's speech. You'll, you'll see why when we get there. But in chapters, uh, chapter 11, one, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 13, Paul is forced to boast about things that Christ has done through him. It's not what Paul desired to do, but because of his boastful opponents... 
He felt the need to boast about the things Christ has done through him. That will be a very interesting section. And then verses uh, 14 of chapter 12 through the rest of the book, Paul addresses just how dire the situation in Corinth is and he prepares the church for his impending visit in which he will face the false teachers. Well, the text before us this morning, chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, has been referred to as Paul's thesis statement of this entire last section. I've entitled my sermon this morning, A Gospel Siege. A Gospel Siege. Paul actually lays the foundation in this text for everything he's going to write towards these false teachers. And he uses wartime language to show just how determined he is to destroy the ministry of the false teachers. Did you say destroy the ministry of the idea? That's exactly what Paul wants to do because it matters that much. So he begins in verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Ah, Paul, myself. It, it, that's actually something noteworthy. This very personal language. He's identifying himself with, with that double language of I, myself. I, Paul, myself. He could be just reintroducing himself this, this way to say something like, Hey, it's me, Paul. You know, the guy that that taught you folks for better than a year and a half. Or or maybe he could be saying, this is not from anyone else. This is from me, Paul, the very man that the false teachers were taking aim at. I say that because this letter began with chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So here, Paul alone is wielding the words in this next section. He could be using this language authoritatively. In other words, as an apostle with authority that he received directly from Jesus. Look, whichever it is, this is, this is very personal language and dire, I think we can see. Paul, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of of Christ. I, I'm urging you, I'm, I'm, I'm urging you to listen to what I'm going to say. And he says he does so by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. These, these qualities of meekness and gentleness were qualities of the Savior Himself. Qualities that Paul, a committed servant of Jesus, sought to display. Meekness can be defined as a mild and gentle friendliness, meekness. Gentleness refers to a characteristic of being fitting, suitable, or perhaps reasonable and fair. These are the very things you'd like for your employer to be, right? <laughs> reasonable, fair, mild-tempered. Look, Paul was in control of his passions. That's what he's saying here. He didn't have temper tantrums. Paul didn't have emotional outbursts. He was in control. Paul was gracious in his dealings, not only with 
brothers and sisters in Christ, not only with his friends, but with his opponents too. Paul was, Paul was gracious. He was meek. He was gentle. But it needs to be pointed out in the redneck south, meekness is not weakness. We confuse those things, I fear. The same Jesus who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart, also twice goes into the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers. He preached a scalding message in Matthew 23 against the religious leaders of Israel. Look, Jesus was absolutely lowly and meek, gentle as Paul describes Him here, but He was bold when boldness was called for. And we're going to see, though Paul is patient, Paul is not easily irritated, Paul can also be quite pointed when there was a need. And getting the false teachers out of the church is the greatest of needs. You might notice if you're reading in the ESV that it has the next phrase set apart. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. There's a... There's a reason that the translators set this apart the way that they did. This is most likely a charge leveled against Paul by the false teachers. They seem to have said, why do y'all follow Paul? Paul is humble when he's face to face with you, but bold towards you when he's away. I know it's been months since we were in chapter 2, but you may recall Paul had... Paul had had this very painful visit to Corinth in which he seems to have been publicly opposed by somebody there. And the church did not stand beside Paul when it happened. And it appears that Paul left Corinth without much of a ruckus. Perhaps that's where the charge of Paul being humble when face to face came from. But if you'll recall, after that painful visit... Paul went back to Ephesus and he penned a very severe letter to them, a very strong-worded letter to them. That may be why they say he's bold towards you when he's gone, when he's away. Using a modern label, these men were actually accusing Paul of being a keyboard warrior. I, I guess I assume you know what that is, and the kids do, certainly. But you electronic-less adults may not. A keyboard warrior is someone who is not bold enough to address a problem in person, but they do not mind going home and airing everything out on social media. In fact, they will, they will blast anybody and everybody. I think we've all at some point been shocked at mild-mannered people that you've known all your life that have a tendency to lose their absolute mind when they get behind a keyboard. Well, that's what they're claiming Paul is. He, he's weak in person, but he'd go home and write you these strongly worded letters. David Garland actually likened their complaints against Paul to the Wizard of Oz, if you've ever seen that Movie, the man who was intimidating to all of Oz so long as he was behind the curtain. But once he was exposed, once he was brought face to face with Dorothy and her friends, he turned out to be this little bumbling, cowardly man. That's the idea that these intruders were saying about Paul here when they say he's 
He's humble in person, but he goes away and he writes you these strongly worded letters. Well, they were wrong. Paul was not afraid to be bold in person when it was necessary. Notice he says so, verse 2. I beg of you, I beg of you, he says, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us as walking according to the flesh. Now look, Paul's already told him he's coming. We, we, we dealt with that in chapter 9. Remember he said some Macedonians who've already made their collection, they may come with me, so you need to make sure that your collection's ready so that you're not embarrassed by all of that. Here, though, things are much more concerning. Paul hopes he will not have to be so bold when he visits. He does not personally want to rebuke them when he gets there, but he will. If it's necessary, he will. And he expects at least some will have to be opposed. Notice he says, I count on showing this boldness against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. These some here are without question the false teachers and may even include some of the members of the church that had bought into the message of the false teachers. These were accusing Paul of walking according to the flesh, or we might say living by the standards of the world. Look at verse 3. Paul answers that charge. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Paul was not a Kryptonian living in Metropolis. He wasn't some sort of superman. Now, Paul lived in this world in a human body. You recall, he even talked about us being jars of clay, paper grocery bags, right? Paul lived in a human body. He faced the same trials of life that we face. That's what he means when he says, we walk in the flesh. One translation offers, we live as human beings. He's, he's just saying, I'm a human just like you are. But Paul did not wage war according to human standards. He did not wage war according to the way the world does. Paul was honest. He lived in a godly manner. He conducted himself in an honorable fashion, fitting for an apostle of Christ or any believer for that matter. Whatever these false teachers had accused Paul of, they were wrong. Dead wrong. In fact, it was they who were waging war according to the flesh. It was they who were waging war as the world wages war. Gary Miller actually describes them as, quote, the new thing on the old philosophy circuit, end quote. In other words, they had all of these philosophers that would always come around talking new stuff, but the, the circuit had been around forever. These guys had just come in with a new message, not true Christianity. That was a warped message of Christianity. They were doing the same thing that philosophers had always done in Corinth, and they did it for personal gain. I think that's pretty accurate. We're going to see that even more clearly as we walk through the remainder of this letter. Not today, but it's, it's coming. 
And then Paul turns to another military illustration. You know, earlier he used that picture of a Roman triumph when a general has won a war and they have this parade marching into Rome. Here, though, it's, it's different than that. He uses the picture of a siege. Notice verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It's amazing how much language Paul used here. This is very strong. He used the word destroy strongholds, destroy arguments, destroy every lofty opinion, take captives thoughts, being ready to punish those that were disobedient. We live in a very tolerant world, especially in churches, using that term very loosely, but Paul is intolerant towards error, in the church at least. Paul says, I don't use worldly methods, I will tell you what we use. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And then he goes into this military language again, uh, uh, describing a siege. Let me make sure you know what a siege actually was back at this day. In, in the first century, major cities like Tuscaloosa even probably would have a wall to protect them from enemy attacks. And so opposing armies would lay siege to the city. They would slowly take the wall down, but they would also, in doing that, cut off all of the citizens inside the wall from the outside world. No more grocery shopping. No more delivering pizza. Nothing. Cut off from the outside world. And those inside the wall would take shelter inside of a tower that was built. A, a stronghold, it was called. And they would put off surrender as long as humanly possible. But it wasn't possible forever. They would be hoping that that foreign army might get called away. But that usually did not occur. And once the siege was complete, once the wall was down, once the stronghold was destroyed, the citizens would surrender and they would turn over the leaders and the powerful citizens as captives to that invading army. That's the picture that Paul is painting here, except he's not talking about an invading army. He's talking about false teachers. Well, Paul describes the Word of God, and specifically the Gospel, as the weapon which will destroy strongholds. Strongholds of the worldly methods used by the false teachers, these heretics that had made their way into Corinth. So perhaps that picture of that siege is going to help you as we, we walk through the remainder of this text. Notice Paul says, the weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds, he says. Like that inner support structure inside the wall. That, that tower which was the last hurrah for a city being attacked. Even the seemingly most solid arguments of false doctrine can be destroyed by God's truth. That's what Paul is saying. 
I'm sure you're familiar with the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6, especially since I preached through that two years ago. I'm sure you all got it right here. Anyway, there is one offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. No doubt the gospel being primary there. Well, there's no reason to believe that Paul intends any other offensive weapon here. The Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. Paul says those weapons destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I think it would do you good to get in your mind what these false teachers looked like and how they tried to conduct themselves when they came into this philosophical town of Corinth. A couple of quotes from some guys I read after this week. Colin Cruz describes these false teachers and what they saw as important. He says they saw as important, quote, an impressive presence, exceptional speaking ability, self-commendation. That's the opposite of humility, by the way. Self-commendation, a Jewish pedigree, the experience of supposed visions and revelations, the performance of supposed signs and wonders, and an authoritarian manner, end quote. That's, that's what they saw as important. Kent Hughes writes, quote, These interlopers doubtless fancied themselves as superior and cosmically gifted masters of rhetoric, knowledgeable of mysteries, recipients of visions and ecstasies, end quote. Well, they get those things straight out of the text. Look, we are going to work through every bit of that as we work through the rest of this book. Paul addresses those very things. Those worldly ideas draw in crowds, even in our day. When we have the entire New Testament... We have in the Old and New Testament the complete Word of God at our disposal, and yet those things still draw in crowds. I suppose we should not be shocked. Nevertheless, Paul will condemn all of those things that the false teachers treasured so much as we work through the remainder of this book. Now understand, these things Paul destroys... Merely through the preaching of the Word of God. I should say the, the accurate preaching of the Word of God. And again, primarily the Gospel. And that means ideas, teachings that are contrary to biblical truth need to be destroyed. They must be destroyed or a church is in serious danger of apostasy. That's precisely what's going on here in Corinth, but it's true of us if we aren't cautious. Guys, listen, the knowledge of God that Paul mentions here, everything God wants us to know is in the book you hold in your lap. False teachings, however, take every thought captive to the world, to, to Satan and his minions. While the truths of God's Word, according to Paul here, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Spiritual warfare intends to change the way people think. Do you think people in our society think differently today than they did a decade or two ago? 
Spiritual warfare intends to change the way people think for the good or for the bad. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of our thinking was taken captive to obey Christ? Obviously, Paul is concerned about the church at Corinth, at least some of them, that their thoughts are being taken captive to these heresies being promoted by the false teachers. Look, Paul is ready. Notice what he says. He is ready when he arrives in Corinth to punish every disobedience. Now look, without a doubt, this refers to the false teachers and any members that hang on to the words of the false teachers. Paul will stand toe-to-toe with them when he arrives. But first, he expects the church's obedience to be complete. Did Did you notice he says that? In other words, he expects the church to deal with what they can through church discipline, no doubt. Now these these false teachers were outsiders. There's not a lot the church can do to them other than lock the door and keep their influence away. However, the church did have authority to discipline their own members and Paul expected them to do just that before he got there. You know, the lack of church discipline in our day is one of the main causes of the religious mess we find ourselves in today, Christianity in America 2023. Well, let's see what we can glean from this little introductory section. How are we to fight in the spiritual war that our great leader has recruited us into? Well, first and foremost, obviously... Problems must be addressed. This is the reality that was bound in the heart of the Apostle Paul, and it is the reality that must be bound in the heart of a church leader specifically. But we all need to know this. Moyer Hubbard writes this, quote, Paul understands that the cost of ignoring destructive behavior is far greater than the difficulty involved in confronting it. And Paul is determined to consider the welfare of his flock above his own personal comfort. End quote. Amen. It is not easy to go to another person and say, you've got a biblical issue and you need to fix it. And yet Paul is willing to do that. And we should be too. Listen, Christians should sit under pastors who will oppose false teachers and false doctrines, absolutely. But members in a congregation, believers who truly desire to honor God, should long for correction if we are out of line. Look, we all get rebuked just by preaching through these texts, but sometimes correction comes through one-on-one communication. It's necessary. It's going to happen. It's not always the other person in that pew or that pew over there, or the person that's not on my pew. Sometimes it's me. Secondly, we learn here from Paul, meekness and boldness can exist simultaneously. Sadly, in our Western world, again, I said earlier, meekness is usually perceived as a sign of weakness. Just think of our our politicians, bold brash, self-confident, often rude and condescending toward their political opponents. Let's be honest, if it's our guy, we like that. But listen, such an attitude, such a lack of meekness is not in any way 
a fruit of the Spirit. We must always remain in control of our emotions. That's what Paul means by he had this meekness and gentleness that he got from Christ. And yet there is a time to speak up. Paul is speaking up. We see that in Paul. We see that in Jesus. You know, Lord, help us be bold when it's necessary, but help us be bold with the right attitude. Thirdly, truth matters. Look, we find, we find God's truth in the Word of God, the Bible. And while I'm at it, let me just say that Scripture is sufficient for anything that we need to know. John MacArthur writes this, quote, The key to being successful in spiritual warfare is becoming proficient at wielding the sword of the Word of God against the lies people believe. Listen, it is impossible to fight error without knowing the truth. End quote. Amen. You know, I've been quite saddened at the lack of biblical discernment not only in Christianity at large, but even in more conservative Baptist churches even. That's why we are committed here, devoted to preaching the Word of God to you, because this book contains all God wants us to know, all we need to know, and God will only hold us accountable for what He has written here. Stop looking for internal impressions for guidance and look into the Word of the living God which we are all so blessed to have in our possession. A few days ago, Scott Annual, I don't know how many of you follow him on social media, but he's an elder at Praise Mill Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia. He posted this on Facebook. I thought it was spot on. End quote. I mean, begin quote. That was a short quote. Begin quote, trust the sufficient word. It's all we need. We do not need supernatural, subjective experience. We do not need the voice of God from heaven. We do not need a still, small voice in our hearts. We do not need visions or dreams or impressions or nudges from the Holy Spirit. We have something better than all that. We have the more sure written word of God. Scripture is sufficient. End quote. I tell you it was a lot bigger quote. Well that brings us to our final albeit important point. Churches are responsible for the leadership that they follow. This is something that is addressed continually in the Word of God. Continually. Do you remember the prophetic warning Paul offered to young Timothy? 2 Timothy 4, there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. What will they do? Oh, Paul tells us, having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers, the kind they like, to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth contained in Scripture and wander off into myths. Guys, churches will be held accountable if they tolerate, or I might say overlook, heretical teaching, and especially if they continue to support it and even crave it. 
Understand, congregations that tolerate or even support heretical teachings are either biblically illiterate, apathetic, or worse, full of unregenerate people. It's scary nevertheless. And Paul's remedy against that problem is simple. Churches must sit under a group of elders and teachers who preach the Word, who are ready in season and out of season. Church leaders that are willing to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That is our need today. It was their need back then. And it is the responsibility of churches to call just those type of teachers into their congregation. I have been greatly disappointed after 25 years of ministry to see men who should know better, men who should have the heart of the Apostle Paul, those men sit idly by while heresies are spewed from pulpits, even when those spewing them have a position of influence over many of their own sheep. That was not the heart of Paul here. And it should not be the heart of any shepherd that cares about the sheep that God has committed to His care. Stand with me, if you will. Wayne, will you dismiss us, please?